Hello, Rev Brad here, and you're listening to Soccer Chaplains United's podcast from the Touchline. Today, part one of special guest Chaplain Greg Nowitzki. Chaplain Greg works with Valor Christian High School Boys Soccer Program, a role I had for some seven years before taking a break a couple years ago. And Greg has a really interesting story that includes a stint playing overseas. But I don't want to ruin any of his telling of the story. So stay tuned. We kick off right after this. Just a little off foot, thinking he's going to go far post. Not strong enough with his right hand. Whips that one in. Far post, almost made him in, and they have. He has the hat trick. The second in his career. The third of the night. The hat trick hero. Talked about you're not going to be able to sustain that kind of pressure. To the corner. Goes towards the near post. And you're at the angle, and what a goal! What a goal! Greg, and welcome to the podcast. Brad, thanks for having me. This is a very immersive experience here in your basement. <laughs> I'm in the soccer world, saturated by it. Oh my goodness. You are, uh, I don't know what you are, but uh, Greg, you and I have a little bit of a funny story. Mm-hmm. Um, we've kind of known each other a little bit longer than than what the records say we know each mm-hmm. other for. Um, we worked at the same church. We know many of the fr- same friends uh, we have those around. And then I wonder, you know, I spent some time in Chicago doing mm-hmm. my undergrad. We haven't really talked about whether our time overlapped, mm. but I imagine it did. Um, did you work at Willow, Willow Creek? Yeah, I did. Okay. Mm-hmm. I never worked there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I went there once, one time as a student in Chicago. But The mothership anyway, or a different one? Different the, I think it was the mothership. <laughs> It took a while to get out there. I remember that uh, from downtown Chicago. But um, you went to Trinity International University. Mm-hmm. We have a chaplain there now. That's right. She was not there when you were a player, though. We've mm-hmm. clarified that. So anyway, I, I think it's pretty cool when you've got a lot of close connections, common commonalities. But um, I would say the only departure is that I am a Red Devils fan, Manchester United, and I take it you're a Liverpool guy. I am a Liverpool guy. However, while we were having lunch earlier today, I showed you a champion's photo of the Vodafone Red Devils back in the day with Paul Scholes, Van Nistelrooy, Giggs, Beckham. I was surprised. Mm. Scholes is still my favorite player. Of all time, okay, that's and that's fair. You can you can have that, but we can switch allegiances from time to time. Well, no, I mean you can like individual players because right. the the person you're serving under the coach, mm-hmm. Coach Schultz, Brian Schultz, he's mm-hmm. been on the pod before. Um, he's kind of a a follower of a guy. Yeah, he likes Pep. We talked about that. Mm-hmm. So he's he's kind of a Man City fan when if Pep's the manager. Mm-hmm. And if Pep moves on someday, he'll he'll move on as well in his allegiance. So, you know, you can like Paul. Okay. It's okay. Where is Paul now? Is he coaching anywhere? I don't know. I don't know. We talked about this earlier. He's probably doing some – he was doing some things for the younger youth. Yeah. In the, and, the area. And, and is he part of that group that owned a team and was trying to build them up through the – or is that uh, – what do they call them? The, the 85s? Hmm. You have more uh, wisdom in your beard, so I think you're more apt oh, to talk about that than about I am. That. I don't know about Greg. <laughs> Come on. Well, Greg, um, what I'd like to do, this is your first time on the podcast. Yeah, so thanks for having me. Where I like to start mm-hmm. is I like people to hear a little bit of your life story, mm-hmm. 
And I don't want to say too much about it because, I mean, I have my parts of the story that I know that I might like you to share about. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, I definitely want you to cover a little bit about your experience playing in England. Like, if you don't do that, we're going to have to hold you down and make you testify about that. But anyway, I, I want to hear your life story the way you want to tell it. So Great. why don't you share with us, like, how did it come to be that you are sitting in my basement right now doing a podcast? What a journey. What a journey. Might take three movies, just like The Lord <laughs> of the Rings. <laughs> hopefully not as long. Yeah, hopefully not as long. Uh, well, I grew up in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. I was the firstborn to Mona and Tony Nowitzki. Hmm. And uh, for our purposes Should we play here, dramatic music here? Oh, we should. <laughs> we have no, a shire I'll, I'll add it in. I'll add it in later. <laughs> okay, right. You know, little hobbits running around. And... <laughs> yeah. So uh, from there, uh, for our purposes, my parents had more of a functional theology or a formal theology of God as someone as a probably a moral therapeutic deist or a cosmic policeman, someone who is far away yet didn't impact the uh, synapses of their brain or how they lived in the world. So my dad grew up Catholic. Mom grew up Lutheran. My brother came about at three and a half years later. But as I've described it to people, we were creasters, hmm. not willow creakers, willow creasters hmm. or creasters, meaning we went to Christmas and Easter services. Oh, so okay. yeah. their formal theology in their brain didn't work out into its functional theology of how we lived in the world. So some of the major things that I focused on as a kid were image management, performance, and especially uh, sports and or intellectual endeavors. So uh, growing up, uh, my dad wasn't very involved in my life at all. And he was actually someone who had uh, alcoholism, had some verbal abuse to my mom, and wasn't around for some significant event. So that really shaped me mm -hmm. as a young boy to think about what does it mean to be a man in this world? What does it mean to live as a person in this family? And so uh, then fast forward until I was about 17, and I'd been playing soccer, I'd been doing well in school. Now, how'd you get into soccer? I mean, Chicago, suburbia being what it is, mm -hmm. why soccer, why not another sport? Yeah. Uh, I was a pretty shrimpy kid. Mm -hmm. I was real small. Okay. And as much as I had a chip Couldn't on make my the shoulder. American football team. No, so. no, no, no. Other than kicker or maybe a Wes Welker type yeah. back in the day of a receiver. Uh, but that chip on my shoulder produced itself into playing lacrosse or wrestling mm. or basketball. So I played a plethora of sports. But the one I seemed to be the most apt at was soccer. Yeah. And so uh, I think it was around seventh, sixth, seventh grade I shifted from just uh, – rec soccer to club or competitive soccer. And that around that time, the ODP oh, soccer yeah. program was really taking off sure. the academy. Some of that language from England started to come over here. So, Which didn't exist when I was playing the mm -hmm. game. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were lucky to have, I don't know, an indoor training <laughs> field somewhere in Michigan. Um, but again, that's part of the generational difference, mm -hmm. part of the age of, and soccer just growing and blowing up in the U.S. And yeah, that's right. around a place like Chicago as well that has a lot more um, migration from mm -hmm. different nations, that's right. uh, more so than where I grew up in Detroit, 
um, yeah, soccer was going to be a, a bigger thing for sure. So, so these things started, you, you made the switch, this jump from rec to mm-hmm. competitive, um, things that w- you were how old? I was about seventh or eighth grade. And so okay. shifting from there to a local club team called the soccers FC sure, played sure. for the, uh, once again, ODP development team. Um, and then also did some, uh, other club teams where we would go to uh, tournaments in Minneapolis, spent some time over in England playing some of their younger academy teams, so especially like Fulham or other things like that. So starting to get recognized nice. in that regard. Nice. Um, so I was gone every weekend or so, or even almost every day playing soccer uh, on a weekly basis. Was doing well in school as well. Didn't have that much of an interest in faith or God or future as more... Uh, let me work really hard mm. and accumulate a bunch of assets or a bunch of experiences that create a sense of worth and value sure. inside of me. Sure. Um, then it was about 17 years old that uh, I went to a friend's house. And at the time, my lung capacity was really large. And so I could, if need be, smoke some weed if I wanted it. Hmm. <laughs> And so I went over to a friend's house. He said, hey, do you want to smoke after school? I said, yeah, absolutely. And so I already blamed Colorado, now living in Colorado. (laughs) (laughs) That that influence made its way to uh, Illinois. But I remember sitting on my friend's couch. And after we were there for probably about five hours together, I leaned back in my chair and I asked two existential questions, which... I had a profound moment of clarity about, which doesn't really make sense from my mental state yeah. <laughs> at that point. <laughs> but I asked two questions. One was, is this it? Mm. Mm. And is this what life's about? Hmm. Getting a full D1 scholarship, being very close to a valedictorian, doing well in all these different areas. That seemed like a really shallow life. I do all these things. And then what happens if I get them or I don't? Hmm. So then that led me to be a part of Willow Creek as a young man. And I had a distinctive friend named Andy who was very influential in uh, that communal reality. And so as I started going to this youth group in about 2009, uh, I said, you know what? I'll say yes to Jesus, Hmm. but under three conditions. There has to be three things that come together for me to actually say yes. And the first one was the intellectual component. It had to be rigorous. It had to make sense. Hmm. I couldn't take a blind leap of faith. A faith step based on good evidence is what I was thinking about. So I read books like Siren Kierkegaard, C.S. Lewis, Francis Schaeffer. So already inciting danger That's, <laughs> as a young kid. Yeah. I mean, at your age too, yeah. to, to take those things on. Mm-hmm. So then the second one was, uh, or at least one of my favorite Siren Kierkegaard quotes is, life is lived forwards but understood backwards, Hmm. which I think is profound. It is. Two, there had to be a communal component. So there had to be a distinctive by what people said and believed over time. Just like I was mentioning before, like our formal theology, what we think and say about God has to translate into how we live with God and other people. Now, was this a condition because you hadn't experienced that with your growing up with your parents or... Yeah, like how did you come to put these terms? 
<laughs> How did you draw up the term sheet for Jesus? Yeah, you know? totally. Well, it was through vivaciously reading and yeah. thinking through categorically, how do we experience our world? Mm. And so I may have not used that term back then, but I definitely knew there had to be something about what people said and believed over time for me to think that this is viable, credible, and Often in high school, I would think Christians were really stupid (laughs) or not very smart or thorough on how they thought or lived in this world. And so when I started to see that, okay, their love produced in them a response to the things that I would never respond like that to. Okay. And so that started to percolate and go, wow, this is really distinctive in that regard. Sure, sure. And then three, it had to be personal. God had to meet me personally. Hmm. So the first two came together after four to five months. So once again, springtime into the summer of 2009. And then I was invited to a summer youth camp at Willow in 2009. And that's where God met me personally. What was that like? I mean, how did he meet you? Yeah. So while we were at a camp, those two things started to really produce a sense of what other theologians calls these infusions of grace. And so I started to think, okay, there could be something more than is actually there. Hmm. And so while the speakers were talking about the different vignettes of who God is to us and to the world and what he's done, I started to think, wow, okay, like this could actually shape who I am in the present to engage the world. And as we, if you're unfamiliar, that there are contents and context to the gospel. The gospel is good news that while all of us are devastatingly broken by sin, we are beautifully made in his image. And kind of like a fidget spinner for our younger audience, we've spun out of sync Mm. with God. And he's done something dramatic and decisive in the son of Jesus Christ. He has come to liberate us from the tyranny of ourselves, to reconcile us back to our truest selves, himself, and other people, that what he did on the cross in the grave has implications for me now. So you're sitting at camp, the bugs are biting you, (laughs) the fire's going, there's a mix of young people all around. B.O. all around. And Soren Kierkegaard comes into your thought cloud Mm -hmm. and says, life's lived forward, but Mm -hmm. we learn by seeing it Mm -hmm. in reverse, or whatever the quote was that you just said. And this coalescing Mm -hmm. of communal mm-hmm. and and the content, the context, mm-hmm. these things were all kind of coming together for yeah. you. And then it was in that moment then when the speaker was speaking about what Jesus has done, what he longs to do in your life, there was this gripping to my soul and almost uh, uh, apprehend, not apprehension, it uh, arrested me in that moment. Now, were you looking around at other kids going, did anybody else feel that? Or or like, were you kind of conscious that this personal encounter with yeah. God was happening to you yeah. through the speaker's words mm-hmm. and through that, that moment, particular moment in time? Not only that particular moment in time, but one of the most uh, catalytic ways I experience him is through worship, is through songs, mm. through singing. And so while the music was playing, I sensed that, okay, I got I to gotta lay down my life. I'm actually serious about this, Mm. not only intellectually, communally, but personally with my body posture. So I actually went to the ground 
on my knees. Face down? Face down. Face down. And started to weep that this is what has been done for me, not what I do for So Jesus comes, he meets the Mm -hmm. terms, encounters you at this camp. Yeah. You're freaking out the other kids next to you because they're they're, like, what's going on with this guy? What is happening in this guy? And I was, as I have described it to other people, looking back in reflection, God captured the restlessness of my soul. Hmm. And like a guitar, restrung my heart with the chords of eternity and has not gone back since. Mm. And I actually had to have a youth leader pick me up off the floor because I was so infused or captivated by his vision, his values, and how he wanted to use my life for him. I think of that verse in Psalms, like, who is man that you are mindful mindful of him? him. Yeah. Yeah. So you come from this broken, a place of brokenness where mm-hmm. you're weeping, you're, you've just had the personal encounter, mm. all the terms have been met. You get up and do you have a vision for what's next in your life or, or how did that part of the journey uh, take yeah. on? Good question. So from there, uh, as I started to be involved in the youth group in an even greater capacity, start leading, sharing what God had done in my life for the past number of months, a number of older, wiser people were like, hey, you should think about doing some ministry. Now, had you cast soccer and all the things of this world and life aside, or were you still kind of doing those things Mm -hmm. at the same time? Yeah, I was still doing those at the same time. I think of uh, Eric Lydell or Eric Little, if you're talking to who who he (laughs) is. Depends on who you are. Yeah. Uh, He says, when I run, I feel God's pleasure, or God made me fast for a purpose. Mm. So I started to think, how does... This gift that he's given me to use John Wesley, gift and graces, how does this integrate into my life? And so I knew that I could have a great impact and influence in the soccer community as I continue to play and have this new identity and new way of living in the world impact the things that he's given so, me. So as a player, yeah. this was a transformative moment. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So... So starting no, to no leave. more cussing, no more yellow cards <laughs> on the field. Oh, there's a process to okay, it, but okay, it takes yeah. time, right? Um, but I noticed a gen- like a new love for my teammates, or mm. I wanted to serve them instead of get ahead of them. Or mm. I think of the ways we think about life, and I want to get from something. I want to sure. get from this sure. organization, this place. Instead, I started thinking, how can I give mm. to these people? And so I continued to play and. I loved it. And I even had an injury that senior year and I had a total different way of thinking about it. I was like, oh, when friends were injured in the past, I just dismissed them and looked them off. Mm. Now I'm starting to have this redemptive outlook Mm. on how I might serve, see value and care for the people that are around me. It's not soon after that Jesus does something internally that he lifts my head and turns me to the person that needs him or needs attending to the most. Sure. And so... I continued to play and going into my senior year. And so not only did I have a death to life experience with God, then uh, I had an amazing soccer practice my senior year. This was in January 2010. Now we're talking soccer practice. Soccer practice. This is just a training session. Yeah, a training session. And while I was at the training session, I was going against the number one recruit in the state going to Michigan State mm-hmm. that year. Mm. Played against them the whole practice, sh- played lockdown defense, like a lockdown corner in American football. Yeah, yeah. He actually got tripped at one point, and he tried to kick me. He tried to fight me during practice. He got kicked out, and I'm, I didn't retaliate. 
and I'm driving home and I'm thinking like, man, I got a D1 scholarship. I'm blonde. Like I'm the Christian David Beckham. (laughs) This is awesome right now. And I walk into my home and my mom's sitting there uh, at the butler's pantry. And she says, hey, Greg, can we talk? I said, yeah, sure. And she said, "Uh, dad has had a heart attack. Hmm. He's in the hospital right now. Hmm. Would you like to go see him? And I'm thinking, what is happening right now? And so we drive to the hospital. I'm looking up at the stars in this St. Alexian parking lot and asking God, what are, you, what are you doing? What is happening right now? And the next day I was called out of gym class. And oftentimes when I tell my story, I forget this, but uh, I got called out. And back in my freshman year, I got like 30 detentions. So I'm like, I didn't do anything wrong. Like, I'm good. <laughs> But unfortunately, uh, the dean said, you need to go to the office and sign out right away. Mm. And I knew it was my dad. And so my dad ended up dying on January 9th, 2010, a month before my birthday, right when I was about to go to college. Right, right as you hit the apex of this sort of mm. spiritual high, this new mm. understanding of who you are in Christ as a mm-hmm. footballer, as a student, as a young man, as a mm-hmm. son, all of a sudden yeah. shaken to the core, shaken mm-hmm. to the foundations of... Yeah. So death to life mm-hmm. in the spiritual and now an absolute death in the natural. And I remember driving home that night and sitting in my bed and just thinking, who's going to be my dad now? What type of man am I going to be? What chance do I have now that this is in my world? I'm now a part of a club I've never wanted to join. And through an enormous amount of emotions, uh, I said, God, I have no idea what you're doing. I'm so angry. Mm. I'm directionless and hopeless. But for what you have done in my life, the way you've changed me, transformed me, never given up on me. I'll do my best not to give up on you. You said that, and you know, a lot of times in football and, and just in life, mm. we hear, we, we sit in church or religious mm-hmm. services, we hear the connection of God mm-hmm. and God as father. Mm-hmm. And here is God, the father, taking away your father mm-hmm. in a matter of speaking. Mm-hmm. And yet you've said to him, I'm not going to give up on you. I try as I might. I'm going to try really hard. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to give up on you. I mean, Greg, just, just to help our listeners understand, is this something you're saying in moments after your dad's death? Or is this taking hours, a few days, mm-hmm. weeks? Like, is this, maybe this is still part of your, your process and your story. Mm-hmm. Is it, because many times if we have an abusive father, if we have a negligent father, mm-hmm. if we have whatever, fill in the blank father. Mm-hmm. For me, I, I have had a workaholic father. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I've equated the things I've seen in my father, yeah. the things I know about my father with God the Father as mm-hmm. an expectation. Oh, yeah, God yeah. expects me to work hard. Yeah. God expects me to achieve. And like, so we, we make these mm-hmm. a transference, these, these parallels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you, though? Did you, did you kind of put an expectation on God or feel an expectation from him because of mm. what had happened with your father? Yeah, that's a good question. 
Well, I heard something, whether it was from a preacher, it came into my mind proverbially or whatever it was. Uh, I, before my dad died, heard that God is not the reflection of our earthly father, but the perfection of him. Mm. So any good, any shred of value is exponentially, eternally in God. So you had a correct framing of God mm. before this all happened. In the most uh, uh, developmental of senses in that regard. Um, however, it was about two days after he died that I was already doing some of the inner work of like, well, what if he dies? What if he doesn't? Uh, I even lived out James chapter 5, verse 13, where it says, are any among you sick? Mm. Are among you mm. in trouble? Let him call the elders of the church. Let him anoint him with oil. Pray over him. And then the Lord will raise him up. And we did that, but that didn't happen. Mm. And so how do I then hold what I read to what I experience? Sure. And I think of also the Psalms where it, I think it's specifically Psalm 141 or 121 where David pours out his complaint. He pours out his trouble. He yeah. gives all of it. And while the verbs are varied, interestingly enough, his direction is consistent. Sure. It's to him. It's to him. I pour out my trouble to him. I pour out my complaint to him. And kind of like Disney's Inside Out, if we stuff sadness down, joy will be lost down with her. <laughs> right, right. So it's good to cultivate that both grief and gratitude, this arduous way of thinking with, oh, man, I also don't know. Mm. I'm going to entrust myself to the one who knows all Yeah. in that regard. And so while my life was in pieces and my dad was still gone when I prayed that, there was a peace and a hope that percolated inside of me because of my ability given by him to me to trust, to see, to sense. And what's fascinating is I don't remember saying that prayer mm. until about five months later when I was meeting with a youth leader friend and I had told them that five months before. Hmm. And so when they told me that, I started to weep. Because they even remember saying they reminded you, they they, they reflected back to you something right. that you had said. Mm -hmm. So that question you asked as a young man, "Who will now be my father?" Mm -hmm. Has God answered that prayer, or is He answering it? I mean, yeah, it's a great question. Well, what's profound is I think of Jesus's words when He says, "If those who seek to save their life, they'll lose it; but if they lose it for My sake, they will find it." That so often in our North American culture, it will, we will say, be true to yourself, mm. follow your heart. Yeah, yeah. But Jesus says, die to yourself. Yeah. Not that he's taking something entirely away. He wants it to not have a hold on our life the right. way in which it often does in mine, right. maybe in yours, yeah. maybe in our listeners. So I've noticed the profound redemptive of God to bring men in my life to reflect to me what is needed and how I can become all that I'm meant to be under God. I can name so many different people's names even now who have been that to me. They have offset the deficit or often what I've said, the handicapped nature that I feel, mm. whether that be through mentors or friends or counselors or the yeah, people whatever. that I get to uh, be influenced by. So 
And there's, uh, there's both what theologians of old have called his sovereignty and our responsibility. So it's not like I'm doing nothing and have this fatalistic attitude. I'm pursuing um, those particular people in my life too, to uh, give me the things I know I don't have and who can show me more of who God is. Wow. So it's a few months after your father mm-hmm. has passed. You're with the youth leader. They remind you of these words. Mm-hmm. Where does the story go next? I mean, where do you, how do you end up in England and, and doing <laughs> all these things? You have the D1 scholarship. So are you, do you follow through on that? What, yeah. what happens next? Once again, as, as I said earlier, uh, just after I say yes to him, to God, people in my life who had seen me in different <laughs> capacities had said, hey, maybe think about ministry. Mm. Ministry being, uh, whether it be in a church setting or a parachurch setting or an urban ministry. I was like, I just said yes to this whole thing. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Uh, and there's so, more? There's yeah, there's more, more to, to this? say. What are you talking about? <laughs> and so... Interestingly enough, fast forward to that same camp a year later, 2010, I sensed that there was this greater hitch on my life that soccer had become the ultimate thing Mm. rather than the good thing, that I was clinging to that rather than to him. And so I started to sense maybe I need to let go of this D1 scholarship and be willing to do that. And so I went to my mom and said, hey, this is what I sensed or heard in this one camp. What do you think about that? And she was like, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) That's how we're paying for college. Can't let go of it. It absolutely makes sense, too, that four or five months after her husband dies, for her son to come and say, this is what I'm sensing, uh, was very disruptive and concerning and confusing to her. And so... As a way to both honor my mom and honor God, I said, well, what if I went to school, this one particularly, for a year, and then we can reevaluate? Hmm. <laughs> then looking back, I'm like, I was already trying to exercise some entrepreneurial spirit sure, there. Sure. Like, let's uh, talk about the risk and reward and all that. But So I went there for a year, and then I thought, you know, I need to actually come back closer to Illinois. I noticed some things rumbling in my heart that I hadn't addressed or attended to. I missed my mom and my brother, wanted to be closer to the church I uh, had a significant experience with. And so it was around that time I started to think, okay, I'll go back to Chicago and I'll go to Wheaton. I mean, okay. we had talked about uh, going there and playing soccer there and I had a good relationship and I thought, oh, I'll go there. But then it was during that time that somehow Trinity International University came up. And I thought, all right, that's not my plan, but hmm. let, let's check it out. And it was worked out so well that it was about 45 minutes from home, and then I could work at Willow and do that. So okay. a diversified set of pursuits. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Once again, coming back uh, to the Chicagoland area. And from there, uh, played really well, uh, got some All-American recognition, and... It was during that time at the end of my senior year that there was this uh, 90 plus ministries that uh, came to the States, recruit some people for soccer, and they had a connection to Liverpool's Academy. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. Um, And so they were interested in me and we started to have a conversation 
And as we've mentioned before, I really love to read. And so one thing that really helped shape my thinking about calling and direction and how does my gifts and passions align with God? I did a lot of ruminating on Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll mm. give you the desires mm-hmm. of your heart. And so how do I hold both of these, whether they be intention or an integration? So uh, an author that's been really helpful for me is a man named Friedrich Buchner. So he's a German man. We say Buechner. We oh, just say Buechner here. All yeah. right. Well. But your German background, you, you probably pronounce it better than, <laughs> than we do. Well, it says... I love uh, this quote you're going to say because I know it. Oh, I've, I've held on to it, but I want you to say it. Yeah, yeah. Go on. So it says, the place God calls you to is the place where your deepest gladness and the world's deepest hunger meet. Yeah. And so similarly to uh, my younger years, I prayed two prayers that uh, would, and still to this day, guide and ground me in his vision, his Mm. values, his Mm. ways, his worship, is God, I long to have faith and obedience like those I see in the scripture. (laughs) Oh my gosh. All right. And two, I long to preach the gospel to the nations, not just this one, not just North America. So I started to think, wow, this is an infusion, a coalition of both. Yeah. And so. Especially in football. I mean, because soccer brings these things together. Yeah, so the fact that I had these convergence of two realities, like my identity in him, my sense of being in him, and I get to play soccer, that's the dream Mm. as a young man to play professional soccer and do some ministry. So I moved to Liverpool in 2014 and played over there for a year uh, in their academy system, Uh, a plethora of stories there, but... One of my favorites was uh, not entirely soccer related, but through soccer, I was able to get connected to a particular church that was running a uh, course called the Alpha Course. If our leaders are unfamiliar, it's a 12-week course that helps people go through the basics of what it means to have a relationship with God. Why do we pray? What about evil? Does God still heal today? And it's all done in a very... Um, conversational, not so much propositional yeah. way. And we had this one moment where we were uh, talking about, does God still heal today? And this one girl had come up and she said she had a level nine pain in her calf and she wanted prayer. Hmm. And so a team of us were praying and we prayed once, not too much change, and then as all of us were praying, one of the leaders had a sense that they should pray that an icy hot like experience would come upon this girl's calf. Hmm. Icy hot we put on our body if we have an sure, injury sure. or pain. And while we're on this podcast, you can't see it, but her eyes were closed and then they flashed open with a blaze. And she said, I felt that. Hmm. Was this person praying out loud or they, yeah. they were just... Oh, okay. They were praying out loud. Wow. And her pain, after a few more times of praying, went from a nine to a one. And she could jump around. <laughs> it was phenomenal and startling and stunning and incredible. So, um, and yeah. And also had an impact on you being a footballer in an academy setting. Absolutely. You're, you're thinking, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Prayer works. Prayer does work. And it's simply talking to him. 
it's a two-way conversation, listening, receiving, and living. And so, yeah, I played there uh, for a year. Uh, if any of our listeners have seen the Ted Lasso <laughs> Apple TV show, uh, you can start to pick up some of the ways what it's like to be in a football locker room, to play day to day, to be out in the country. And so to have this infusion of both faith and soccer was fascinating in that regard. But now, who, who was the coach of Liverpool at the time? Uh, I think, yeah, uh, Klopp was. Really? Still? Okay. Wow. Well, I have to press pause on the interview right there. And it's not because Greg's a Liverpool guy, honestly. In all seriousness, though, tune in next week to hear part two of Greg's story. And it's a really incredible story of how Greg's time and trial at Liverpool came to an end and the journey and the transition that God's had him on since then, which has resulted in him now serving as volunteer chaplain with the Valor Christian Boys High School Soccer Program. Well, you've been listening to Rev Brad and Chaplain Greg Nowitzki coming to you from the Touchline, and I hope to see you next week for part two.